0: Would you turn to Exodus chapter 20, please? Exodus chapter 20 to continue our series in the Ten Commandments. We're going to read verse three. Those who haven't been here might wonder how this could be continuing a series in the Ten Commandments, as this is the first commandment, but the first two sermons have been introductions. So Exodus 20, verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. There's the first commandment. That's our subject this evening. But first of all, there was once a man who was known as the monk who shook the world. He nailed his 95 theses to the uh, door of the castle church in Wittenberg in Germany. He had the emperor and the pope. And it seemed all the world stacked against him. But he said, possibly not clear if he really did say, but it's a good story. Here I stand. I can do no other. And his name was Martin Luther. What's he got to do with the first commandment? He's known for preaching justification by faith alone. We're accepted by God without law, nothing to do with God's law. But he was actually very interested in God's law and he wrote about it. And he wrote this. It's one of the things he wrote about it. The first commandment must come first. (laughs) That's a funny thing to say. Of course, it comes first. Yes. But have you considered the order of the Ten Commandments? They're not random. The first commandment, Martin Luther said, must come first because he said. That every breaking of commandments two to ten, every sin comes from us having an idol every time we sin it comes from us putting something above god if you break commandments two to ten it's because you've somewhere broken commandment one you haven't given god his rightful place the first commandment must come first now if he's right and i think he is right if behind all our sin is some form of idolatry, well that means we must have a big tendency to idolatry. If you think of all the times you've sinned, there's an idol behind it somewhere. Wow. Another man from, well the same time as Martin Luther, another great church leader, John Calvin, he must be right then when he said, the human heart is a factory of idols, a continual idol factory. I think of the factory and all of the things going out on the conveyor belt. I suppose they didn't in John Calvin's time. But anyway, there must have been some sort of factories then. And he said, well, think of that. Our heart is just continually producing idols. And it also means this. Recognising our idols must be a vital part of fighting sin. So my aim this evening is to help us to recognise our idols to get us seeing what gods we have that are not the Lord. So I'm not going to be providing general information on the first commandment. I'm not claiming I'm going to explain and thoroughly examine it all this evening. We covered it in home group, those of us who go along to home groups. And one of the main reason we've got this series, even though we've been doing the 10 commandments in home groups, is to try to push home what we've heard in home group. So I want my aim is that we should be responding to this commandment by weeding out any idols we have. Before I get into that, a book recommendation that's helped me on this. Tim Keller, famous preacher in America, counterfeit gods. Uh, it's, It's easy to spot the Hindus in your street with an idol in their house. But what gods do we have? This was written, interestingly, in 2009. In New York, what's the significance? Well, a lot of people's idols in New York would have been their money and their careers. And in 2009, quite a lot of those were in trouble. So it's got an interesting side to it there, but it's more general than that. It's not just about money, counterfeit gods in general. I'd recommend that book. I think the notice sheet might tell you how you can get it. Possibly. I'm not sure. I think there's some information. So this evening, what I want to do is spend most of our time on what is your God and then a little bit of time on what to do about your gods. Most of our time on what is your God, then a little bit at the end on what should you do about your gods? Verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. But what is it like to have a God? How do you tell if you have a God? What's it like? I want to give you three tests and I want to base them on Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. It probably probably would be sensible to turn to Deuteronomy 6, verse 13 for the rest of this evening. Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. This is a chapter about the Lord being Israel's God and being the only one. So it has that wonderful statement of faith. That triumphant statement of of Jewish people in verse four, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. We've just got one God. He's the only one. Nothing else should get near him. What does that look like, though? Verse 13. Fear the Lord, your God. Now, that involves worship. It's more than worship, but it involves worship. So the first test I'm going to have is what do you worship? Then, verse 13, serve him only. Now, serving means he's our authority. We come under him as our authority. So the next test is going to be, what is your authority? And then, verse 13, take your oaths in his name. That's about what you say, what you confess. So the third test is going to be, what do you confess? They're not the only tests of what your God is, but they're the three we're going to have this evening. So. First of all, what you worship. When Satan tempted Jesus, he wanted Jesus to worship him. What did Jesus do about it? Well, he quoted scripture and he quoted this verse. You might not notice that or recognize quite at first, because often in the New Testament, they're quoting the Greek version of the Old Testament. And some words are a little different. So Jesus, quote, said. Worship the Lord, your God and serve him only. It's Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, using a slightly different version. We're to worship him only. The Psalms are full of only he is worthy of worship. Isaiah is full of. Look how ridiculous your idols are compared with the Lord. How silly to worship them, worship him. It's easy to show that. We must not engage in the worship of other gods. It's easy to show. Don't get involved in Diwali. Don't engage in ancestor worship if your family expect it at a family funeral. Easy to show that. But worship goes far beyond those things. Let me try to show it by giving you an example, by telling you about two people. One was in the tabernacle. One was in the desert. The one in the tabernacle was engaged in religious acts, religious acts that God said should be done. The one in the desert was on the run from danger. Which one is worshipping is the opposite to what you might expect. The one in the tabernacle was called Doeg, and the Bible says he was detained before the Lord. He was there having to do his bit. He's got to get it done. Get it out of the way. It's a bit of an annoying burden, but let's get it done. David in the desert. Well, we read Psalm 63. He's full of desire for God. More than safety, I want God. More than food and water in this hot desert, I desire him. Which one's worshipping? Well, It's definitely David and not Doek. Because worship is ascribing worth. Worship is showing what God is worth. Often these things where you mess around with words don't really work, but this one does. Worship is worthship. It's showing the worth of God. And Doeg showed he thought God was worth not very much. Let's just get this out of the way. David, running in the desert, showed he thought God was worth. Everything. Your God is what you worship isn't just about religious actions. What do you think is most worthwhile? That's your God. What do you put most effort into pursuing? That's your God. So let's get some tests, a couple of simple tests of what you worship. What you think is most worthwhile. I realized I'd become middle-aged when I discovered myself daydreaming about making improvements to the garden. Oh, dear. How how boringly middle-aged. By the way, that wasn't recently. I'm not claiming I've only just become middle-aged. That was quite a few years ago. I found myself daydreaming about making improvements to the garden. Oh, boy. I feel quite embarrassed about that. What do you daydream about? When you've got an idle moment and there's nothing pressurizing you and demanding your attention, where does your mind go? What do you like to daydream about? That's quite a good test of what you think is most worthwhile, what you pursue. Here's another one very similar. What gets your emotions churned up? Now, I know nothing about fishing, but according to Tim Keller in that book, fishermen know where the water is churning, there's a good chance there are fish below it. And where our emotions are churning, there's a good chance there's an idol below it. Something that gets you worked up sounds like something of high worth to you. Maybe you're wounded because someone has snubbed you and you must, above all else, have other people's esteem. Maybe you're scared because there's something in your life threatened and it's something you must have. You must not lose. Now, for these things I've said, be careful. Christians are not supposed to be people with no ambitions, no daydreams, no desires and without strong emotions. We're not supposed to be just, I don't know, some wet fish who doesn't care about anything. There are so many things in God's world that are worthwhile. But not more worthwhile than him. That's the key. So ask yourself, what do I daydream about? What gets my emotions churned up? It doesn't guarantee it's an idol. But it is a helpful way to check for idols. I hope you've got that, because it's really important. We don't beat ourselves up over being enthusiastic for some sport or some film. That's not wrong. Or for your family. It doesn't guarantee that thing is an idol. But it's a it's a good starting point for checking. Is there something that's taking God's place? in my heart by the way in ezekiel there's an interesting verse where god says my people have set up idols in their hearts for for those who think the old testament wasn't spiritual the new testament is the old testament's just actions and the new testament is hearts. it's interesting ezekiel says my people have set up idols in their hearts what you worship here's the next one what your authority is Deuteronomy 6 verse 13 again. Fear the Lord, your God, I've linked that to worship. Serve him only. Serve him only. Well, think of servants. A servant serves a master. And Jesus said we're not to be divided in which master we serve. This is about who your master is. This is about who your authority is. It's described further in Deuteronomy 10. I'll just read you a couple of verses from Deuteronomy 10. Like so many of these books of Moses is expanding the Ten Commandments. And in verse 12 and 13, we read, and now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. Interesting. For your own good. The law is good. Serve him. Obey him. It's all saying he is the top authority. That's the issue here. He's the top authority. Now, imagine a school and at this school, uh, they're recruiting a new teacher and they're choosing between two candidates. But the head thinks one is best and the deputy head thinks the other one is best. If they can't agree, which which of those two has which one has to give way to the other one? Those in schools might say I've completely misunderstood how it works. But anyway, bear with my simplified system of how it might work. Yeah, The head wants candidate A and the deputy wants candidate B. Which one will have to give way? Well, you say, of course, the deputy has to give way to the head because he is the higher authority. What must all else give way to in your life? That's your highest authority. What may what must all else give way to in your life? That's your top authority. That's your God. Give a little example. Many years ago, when I was a student at university, having one of those student sort of discussions, uh, I don't know how we got on to it. We were talking about what does the Bible say about slavery. Can't remember how it came up, but there was a bit of a heated discussion about the Bible and slavery. And my friend Daniel said, "If the Bible supports slavery, then the Bible is wrong. If the Bible supports slavery. The Bible's wrong." And um, this was someone who called himself a Christian, by the way. Now, what's he doing? What he's doing is saying my principle about slavery and human rights. That comes top. And the Bible is judged by how it compares with my principle. What he should do is say, God is the top authority and my principle comes under him and is judged by him. By the way, I'm not commenting there on the rights or wrongs of slavery or what the Bible says about it. I'm just giving an example of someone who says, Here's my principle and I'll judge the Bible by how it comes up to it instead of the other way around. God is the top authority. So is there a principle in your life, something you hold to? And that's what you live by. And if God's word doesn't fit with it, God's word is brushed aside, at least in that area. Is there a person in your life? And if following God clashes with that relationship, Well, God gets brushed aside because you must have that person. Is there an ambition in your life? And if following Christ hinders that ambition, well, water down following Christ. Yes, I'll still follow him, but but let's water it down. Because I must have that. They're all signs of an authority above God in your life. They're signs of what your God is. What you worship. What your authority is. And then thirdly, what you confess. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 6 verse 13. Fear the Lord, your God. What do you worship? Serve him only. What's your top authority? And take your oaths in his name. What do you confess? In Old Testament religion, what you formally acknowledged mattered. What you formally acknowledged and confessed mattered and still does in the new testament romans 10 if you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord luke 12 whoever acknowledges the son of man before men him would the son of man acknowledge before the angels of god what you formally confess matters but like with worship it's broader than just your formal statements. It's much broader than that. It, what do you confess? What do you like to talk about? There's a good test. What do you like to talk about? Now, it's not wrong to have enthusiasms that you like to talk about. I hope you do. But are there topics that you always seem to manage to steer the conversation onto? Maybe without even realizing you're doing it. It's just where you go. Are there things that light you up? And if they come up, well, that will get you speaking. That's not a bad thing, but it is something to keep an eye on. It's something to keep an eye on for this reason. If I fill this cup with water and I fill it too much, what will it overflow with? Silly question. Water. If I fill it up with orange juice and fill it up too much, what will it overflow with? Why am I patronizing you with such questions? Orange juice. Well, what did Jesus say? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What tends to overflow out of your mouth? And what does it say your heart is full of? Again, this is not to beat us up for our things we have enthusiasm about. God's given us a wonderful world and so many gifts, and it's right to enthusiastically speak about them. But does your conversation show your heart is full of amazement at the glory of God and wonder at the love of the Lord Jesus? Does it overflow out of your mouth? I'm trying to help you recognize If you have a God that is taking the place that the Lord should have. Now, let's more briefly do this. What should you do about your gods? This is a big subject, but I want to just give you two pointers on it. What should you do about your gods? First one, don't always get rid of them. Now, did you expect that? Don't always get rid of them. <laughs> That's rather odd thing for a preacher to say. Then there are some idols we should obviously, desperately, urgently get rid of. If you've got a Hindu idol on your shelf at home, chuck it in the bin. If you've got a sin that you love, cut it off at the root. Don't just trim it down a bit. If there's something that is not a sin, but it's really got a grip on you and it's just overwhelming your life. And it's eating you up. And it's the thing that every moment is devoted to. Sounds like you need to get rid of it, even if it's not a sin. So why do I say don't always get rid of them? Because of this thing that John Calvin rightly said, our heart is a continual idol factory. We're so good at turning even God's good gifts into idols. We can turn all sorts of things into idols, and some of them well, you just can't get rid of. Here's an example. A woman got married at 37. She'd always wanted to have children, but she'd, she'd in the end concluded, well, you know, it's too late for her. She's not going to have any. But to her amazement, she had a daughter. And you wouldn't be surprised to hear she idolised her daughter. She would never expected to have a child. Here she's got a beautiful daughter and her life was totally centered around. And she gave every effort and every attention to her daughter. And unsurprisingly, she spoiled her. Now, the solution is not to get rid of the daughter. I hope you agree. Yes, I hope you agree. That sounds like she is idolizing her. But I hope you also agree. Don't get rid of your daughter. Yeah, It's very common, isn't it, for parents to idolize their children. But please don't get rid of your children. You see, you might say that's an extreme example, but it's one example of some idols you must get rid of. Some you can't and shouldn't. So what do you do about them? What do you do about them? Here's, here's the second thing about what you do about your gods. Elevate the Lord above them. That's the key. That's the key. That woman isn't to get rid of her daughter. Of course not. Don't be silly. But she is to elevate the Lord above above that daughter. Elevate the Lord above your idols. A 20 year old man is a Leicester City fan. Every Saturday afternoon, he's at their matches or whenever it is they play these days. Almost never you see him wearing anything other than a Leicester City kit. Always got his Leicester City top on. And then one day it's Saturday afternoon and Leicester City are playing. And now you see him sitting on a park bench. He's not at the match. And he's looking good. He hasn't got his Leicester City top on. He's got himself some new clothes. What's happened? A girl. That's what's happened. There's a girl in his life. She's sitting next to him on the bench. And she has come into his life and outranked Leicester City in his affections. That's what's gone on. That's the answer. Not a girl, but the Lord Jesus. Yeah. The Ten Commandments are to get us to the Lord Jesus. They do it by showing up our sin. They all do it by showing up our sin. So we get to him for forgiveness. That's the purpose of the Ten Commandments. They're to drive us to him. But this first commandment does it another way too. Because the answer is get to Jesus. So he outranks everything in your affections. Get your eyes fixed on Jesus. And see, no other idol, no idol compares with him. Elevate him above everything else. So he outranks them in your affections. If Martin Luther is right, that behind every sin, there's an idol, there's us putting something in God's place. Then that means that behind fighting sin is get to know Jesus. So he outranks the idols. So we desire him more than anything else. Have God, our saviour, outrank it in your affections. Now, that's not a one off thing that you do at the beginning of your Christian life. Right. That's it. Done. You know, it should be simple. Should be simple. Even take Exodus 20, verse two. You know how even if you haven't got it in front of you, how do the Ten Commandments begin? I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Even if you just took that verse and thought, how is that about Jesus? He's the Lord, my God. He rescued me from slavery. What did it cost him to rescue me from slavery? Wow. Even just that should be enough to outrank any idol. But we're not very good at it, are we? And it's something we need to keep on doing. And we keep on needing to remind ourselves and we keep on needing to put our eyes back on him. That's the continual activity of the Christian life. Now, what a joyful thing. The Christian life, the fight against sin is done by considering Jesus. Being amazed at him and seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The best way to fight sin is to stir up your love for your savior. Well, that's a much more positive, joyful way to think about fighting sin. And then those tests in the first part, what do you worship? What's your top authority? What do you confess? Then they become not just negative tests of what your God is, although we need that. They become a positive model. That's what devotion to my Lord and Savior is like. What is more worthwhile than Him? Everything must give way to Him. And who is better to speak about? Than him. Let's pray for that sort of devotion now. Let's pray. Father, we've just been in the first commandment almost without even needing the other nine, and it's exposed a lot of how we don't treat you as God. And how other things easily take your place in our life, in our heart, in our desires, as our authority. Father, how we need to be in Christ. So you look at us and say, not what a miserable sinner, but say, here is my son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Father, thank you that if we're in Christ, you know what we're like. And you know our failures. And yet that's what you say about us. That each one of us, whether male or female, is your son, whom you love, with whom you are well pleased. Father, thank you that in Christ you are not finding fault, but loving us. And so because you love us, please help us. Show us more of your glory. Help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ and be more amazed at your goodness and to revel more in your love. So that we are more devoted to you and the idols are knocked off their perch. And in our hearts, we enthrone Jesus Christ as Lord. We ask in his name. Amen.